Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 165. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. As one trilogy ends, another begins. That's right, it is a new trilogy. And today we start a series of interviews with Andrew Miller. He's a principal technologist within the office of the CTO at Pure Storage. Interestingly enough, Andrew was a humanities major, and you're going to find how he developed some soft skills that we could all benefit from. We're going to follow him from his time on the yearbook staff in high school, where he developed a Mac expertise, to working the IT help desk, to IT operations, to having his own side hustle and being a part business owner, and even into the pre-sales world. And what I also like about this discussion is we stop and we define some terms, customer, partner, alliance, compensation plan. What do all those things mean? Well, you're going to find out in this episode. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen, with part one of our interview with Andrew Miller. Andrew Miller, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Can you uh, remind us who you are, uh, what you do today? Uh, so Andrew Miller, uh, Principal Technologist at Pure Storage, uh, Principal Technologist Office of the CTO Pure Storage. Makes it sound fancier. Hey, you know, kind of thing. Um, and, and when y'all reached out, I was doing a little bit of research and it was really cool to see so many great folks that you've interviewed. Some, some that I know, Scott Lowe, Chris Wall, John Hildebrand, John, Brad Tompkins, Al Rashid, everybody loves Al. And uh, he even feels a little bit like some link back to the Geek Whispers episodes that I lived, like the love, the career pieces, the evangelist pieces. And you've got this amazing kind of techie Zen music starting out. So it's, you know, kind of low key, kind of upbeat, all in the one. So <laughs> that, um, some inside baseball. That was actually my wife who uh, did the arrangement, I think, off of some stock uh, iTunes or not iTunes, but whatever the uh, the free uh, music per uh, creation program comes with a bunch of like, you know, stock beats. And I was like, I'm just looking for something, you know, like slow, like bassy, but like trap high hats. And then like 10 minutes later, she had five different pieces of music. And then the same thing for the the transitional pieces, too. She She arranged all of that. Very cool. Love and it. then Nick's wife did all the artwork for our logos. Yep. So it's a big, uh, big family affair. And I, I love that. So my, my wife is a professional graphic designer. I'm hearing threads there. We could probably geek out about Quark Express and all this page maker and InDesign <laughs> and all that. I've been a musician all my life because my mom didn't give any of us kids a choice. So there's like violin and viola and piano in there. I have a feeling we're not supposed to talk about music the rest of the time, though. But man, I feel like we could. Hey, I, we could probably you know, talk about barbecue half the time too, based on the pre-recording <laughs> conversations. But I think we're yeah. here to more talk about how you got into technology. Although I will say that, like at least one past guest, 
got into technology by being a music teacher. So that's true. But that that's it. Something tells me, and that something being LinkedIn, that that was not your path. It was actually a little bit out of the graphic design path, ironically. So uh, now this may be even going off script a little bit. I was I had a Max from a very young age and uh, got onto the yearbook staff as someone who could take the uh, layouts that my peers did in high school and put them into the computer. This was in the days of Aldous PageMaker. That, doing that for two years was what got me into my first IT help desk job in college you know, for a couple of years, and then that got me to an IT operations job. So I don't know if I'm jumping ahead a little bit. There, there's not a link to the music side, but there's actually a link to the, the desktop publishing side a little bit there. That's so interesting. It, it is one of the first applications that people kind of took home. Right. There's mm-hmm. spreadsheets and definitely graphic design. And there's, I'm sure, many a small home business that was launched based on on the graphic design packages that were available for home computers. And here be the fast fact. Does anyone listening know what a pica is? You know, that goes all the way back to when you measured the, the layout designs in picas instead of inches or centimeters. So, Oh, man, that actually does remind me a little bit of my like six months in yearbook staff. Wow. I, you know, but you're talking 25 years ago. My goodness. We're totally not old. Probably not 35, isn't it, John? 75 years ago. We measured it by flakes of flint um, between, uh, oh, okay. That's, we that's measured it true. by hair left on John's head. <laughs> I feel like you have me beat and I will happily let you take that crown. So, you know, all yours. <laughs> I am interested, though, in that transition like that help desk like that first college help desk job like what were they looking for and what do you think that that qualification was like what qualifies you in to to get into help desk in college so it it, i'll I'll even go back a little bit to being a kid not all the way back but you know just even starting out my my dad had um my dad had a mac mac he brought home dos it was too hard they went to a max it was like the days of like rodime 20 meg hard drives and you know your kid there's no internet so you play SimCity and rover tycoon and then you also start like messing around with res edit which is you know the equivalent of reg edit but res edit on mac under the covers and you do crazy stuff like you know annoying your mom by changing the welcome to macintosh startup screen to be very very afraid you know when it starts up on that initial startup screen so some of this is just like the kid desire like just taking things apart and putting them back together which sometimes go together well, sometimes not. Mm. Um, but adding in that that helped me get into the yearbook side, and there I actually maintained the Macintosh computers and ran, if you remember, like Norton Utilities, some of that kind of stuff before it was semantic. And the guy who was the Mac help desk technician at the time on campus, so I was at a high school that was linked to a university. Um, he figured out that basically he didn't have to do anything with a couple Mac machines that were in the yearbook office because we had two and then three that I basically took care of. Me. He was like. This is cool. I'm just going to leave you alone. So then I was a freshman in college that was linked to university. And partway through my sophomore year, they were looking for someone. He was he had left, but they kind of knew that knew about me. And and frankly, it was a lot of you know, you know students working because you're working for lower pay that kind of stuff. So just the history of knowing how to take stuff apart and put it back together. Some level of they needed a person. I mean. Looking back, they were probably a little desperate. Otherwise, why do you hire a sophomore? But that turned into working uh, 20, 25 hours a week help desk while I was carrying a full load in college. I had a couple bosses in that time, and one of them didn't know anything about Max. Uh, There were two of us, and he he said basically, "Hmm, you seem to know what you're doing. I'm going to help clear roadblocks from you. Guy named Rich Lager. I'll give him a shout out. We're still friends. He was in my wedding, right? Awesome guy. And uh, he then later hired me into my first IT operations position because, like, I didn't even know 
what you know VLAN was at that point, and I saw a rack, and was like, that's a computer, a server, right? It's like, no, you open it up, and it's like, wow, there's lights inside, look at that. But he basically hired me out of college for a junior IT operations role because I'd shown late earlier that I could learn stuff and be self-motivated. So, yeah, it's a wandering around answer, but you know, back to you. It seems like the taking things apart, putting them back together goes along with the liking to fix things. Yes, fix, improve, understand, make them better. There's some level of kind of enjoyment of building and creating in various ways. Yes, yes. What I like are the stories where someone gives somebody who may not have what we think is the right level of experience a chance to prove that they can do the thing. And I think it's really good that this person already knew about Andrew's brand, right? Do a little bit about you as a person and that that was kind of like your billboard for here's who I am. You've seen some of that and if you want more, then you got it. There's the concept both from a work standpoint and even just an interaction standpoint of how someone sees you on any given day. And this only crystallized for me later in my career, especially when you're doing marketing events and talking and being being all out and about. But how someone sees you any given day may be the only impression they ever have of you. And that's actually kind of scary and sobering because we all have bad days, <laughs> to be real, or not the best days, but that might be the only impression you get to make on that person. Like, mm, 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 mm. And we don't think about that. It's actually hard to think about that when you're so busy or maybe we just become complacent to a certain extent. I don't know. Maybe we aren't as thankful to do what we do as we should be. Something like that. Uh, I'm getting into a little bit of perspective. I'm just following the conversation, right? But I mean, the, the sense of perspective of we, if we're in this industry, I'm incredibly blessed. I'm going to speak for both of y'all. Like just relative to what other things we could be doing career-wise in other countries in the world. But man, it, you're right. It is it is easy to lose lose uh, perspective on that. We could just we can insert the first world problems here. There's still problems. There's not, oh yeah, not problems that we have, but they're definitely the problems, the kind of problems that we want to have if we think about it versus the other problems that we'd rather not have. Of course, of course. Yeah, it's it's always some variation of. I always call it the gout problem. Right. Like if you have a disease like gout, it's from like it's because you're eating like super rich food all the time. <laughs> the disease of kings, I think. Right. Like originally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you want to put those uh, problems into perspective and maybe think back a little bit to where you came from and then, you know, maybe practice moderation a little bit. Like, But you're, you're right. Is that perspective on on like, you know, the advantages that we have, the things that we've achieved? And I guess, you know, that rolls back to, you know, why we're here doing a podcast like this, you know, kind of shining the light backwards so other people can see the path or, you know, you know, different possibilities of paths moving forward. Because I'm sure that, you know, all three of us got here, you know, because of people who like, you know, gave us a hand up or gave us some advice, you know, several someone's along the way. And, and then, you know, you can just, you know, it's a cliche, you can never pay it back, but you can pay it forward. So absolutely that uh that manager that first manager that gives you the first it operations job like you know kudos to that person right <laughs> well, that, that turned into and i didn't know it at the time that turned into a seven-year run on the customer side you know kind of admin to engineer to architect i mean the first thing i did was run backup exec because hey this stereotype's true no one wanted to run backups you know so it's a little bit of a, a baptism by fire uh, but then it, w- it was a it was a small enough shop 
that you got to wear a bunch of different hats from networking to virtualization to security, et cetera. But a big enough shop that we had decent sized toys to play with. You know, so starting out with backup exec and then we went to Tivoli Storage Manager. And that's a mind blowing complexity switch. IBM Spectrum Protect now. Okay. I still got a soft spot in my heart for the Rube Goldbergian complexity you could build with that that was wonderful when it all worked and then periodically would kind of come apart and you'd dive back into all the scripts and things that worked on it. TSM is something that I think made it, I wonder like what their footprint is these days because Tanzu service mesh, right? <laughs> Sorry. I like, do work for uh, VMware. Excuse me. You, you young whippersnapper, you, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. So. <laughs> it's so funny because I, you know, I, I, in my regular life, I try to de-acronym like, you know, every, everything, every day, but yeah, Tivoli storage manager, you know, just the, the castles in the sky that you could build with a product like that, you know, the, the special elaborate snowflakes that you could build (laughs) with, with a product like that. Versions retained and the copy jobs and random pulls versus, man, I'm losing some of my terms. It's all still somewhere back there. But But here's the thing. (laughs) It's fixing the snowflakes in those small shops like you're talking about where you have control over so many areas that make you, you know, people fear specializing, right? But they make you so much of a better troubleshooter of overall systems. Having to dive in and go down the rabbit hole and, and troubleshoot that from start to finish, learn the system, and then maybe fix it a few times, rebuild it, that's... That's where the true learning happens, and that's how you, I mean, in my mind, and I'm, I'm playing John White here, this is not really a question, it's just an observation, that, the, that that's where the learning happens so that you can make that move from IT operations to the next tier up. The, I actually, for a while, um, I wondered if I would go for a master's degree at some point, just because I, I'm the least educated in my family. My, my parents had master's degrees, super fortunate, right? Then my brother is a doctor and my sister has a master's in English. And I stopped at a, an, a bachelor's degree because it felt like there wasn't really any point. Looking back, though, and I'm not dis- disparaging peers that have MBAs and have good, done good things out of it, but looking back kind of that seven years when I worked at university was almost kind of like a postgraduate degree, albeit a very long postgraduate degree, but learning so much stuff that turned into the foundation of what I've done later in my career. Yeah, that that is, you know, fascinating and interesting, like the the equivalent, you know, work industry equivalent of doing an advanced degree, um, you know, and several of the, you know, advanced architectural degrees from some of the vendors, you know, I, I say degrees, but like certifications, right? Mm-hmm. Architectural ECX. certifications, yeah, mm-hmm. sure. It, you know, it feels almost like a master's degree in kind of um, doing that kind of thing. I, the the one thing that I have always found different is the publishing part, like the the writing the thesis, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like you know degrees tend to involve writing a little bit more than. IT operations experience generally demands that we do, you know, that, you know, you can get along in a pretty decent sized shop without doing really good documentation. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that that's the best practice, but you can kind of like get along. Now that kind of requires keeping people around and, you know, not turning over people because if you lose the institutional knowledge, you don't have anything documented and that's a really big problem. And probably your service levels aren't going to be great because people have to kind of remember 
you know, how to fix something when something goes wrong because there's no playbook because it's not documented. But are you saying people don't put stuff in ticket notes, John? Oh yeah, see that's that's another kind of writing. And that's that's what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was gonna pull a thread that you were going down, John, but I can't resist Nick. So back on the help desk side, um I got it I get we had a new manager at one point and he said everything must be heavily documented in tickets. There were two Mac techs and we ran the whole campus and then there were a pile of Windows techs. We split the campus by buildings, so we kinda know people wouldn't know us, et cetera. And he said you have to put everything in tickets. And it's like Okay, fine. So I started typing stuff up, and then I never got any feedback. And I started, I'm going to just imagine the guy's name is Bob, okay? And I started to put in the middle of my long ticket notes, like, hey, Bob, are you reading this? I'll buy you a milkshake. Because he was actually a graduate student, and I was an undergrad student, the manager for the help desk at the time. And I never got any response. And then about six months later, uh, the ticket system crashed and found out that the help desk team had actually gone a little bit rogue and were running a ticket system without it being backed up or tracked by IT operations and they lost everything. And there was this realization like, I just put so much time into writing all this stuff in tickets and it didn't mean anything. And I might have been a little bitter for a little while. I mean, I still tell the story, so obviously I haven't let it go. But It's like you know, millions in like, <laughs> mindshare right there. Lost. Yeah. Well, I think it's a lesson in, uh, in operational rigor, right? Like all important systems need to be backed up. The, uh, and even a little bit of some of the early exposure to rogue IT in a different way, you know, actually sure. kind of seeing that. The other thread I wanted to pull that you mentioned a little bit was around writing. I might even expand that a little bit of communication. This is where you don't plan stuff out, but you look back at inflection points and what was valuable. In college, I was a humanities major. I went to a liberal arts, uh, at, uh, liberal arts college university, and I was a humanities major, which is either when you don't know what you're going to do, or you, there are too many things that you're interested in doing. And for me, it was more the latter. There was a lot of business, history, and English, and playing an orchestra, and all this stuff. So actually, a lot of writing in English classes. And as well, so that was where, even though I wasn't writing for the first maybe seven years of my career, I had some of that to fall back on later, which helped when I started blogging and doing other stuff. The other piece is that even back in high school, uh, I was actually on the speech and debate team. It was called Forensics at the time, National Forensics League. And I just saw John, you go like, hallelujah, I think almost. You and so, John are kindred spirits. I was quad ruby, went to nationals in extent my junior year. And and yeah, I got kind of full of myself sometimes as a kid. Just I'm, I'm human, right, kind of thing. But doing Lincoln-Douglas debate in extemp in an, in an area where it's not, it, being real, you're in high school. It doesn't matter if you fail some. But I did well, and I was competitive, and I didn't want to lose, and that was probably more the motivation than other stuff. So just that number of the whole, whether 10,000 hours to be good at something is true or not, just to be able to get that much experience speaking, thinking on your feet, letting your mouth run while your brain's thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, and then tuning back in 30 seconds later, like, wait a minute, am I done this point? Oh, oh, got to go to the next point. I need to, like, my brain needs to tell my mouth the next thing to say for this speech, you know, kind of thing. I don't know how to reproduce that, and that's even been a thing I've thought about for my kids, of a focus on both writing and public speaking as soft skills that didn't matter as much in my first seven years of my career when it was more about hard skills. But post the customer side job, and we'll pull some of this later, that's a lot of what has heavily set me apart and enabled my career to progress with a really good hard skill foundation. I, I actually have thought thought this through, like what, you know, reproducing like that type of experience for kids, like really involves doing extemporaneous spe speaking <laughs> and, and participating in forensics in high school. Like I, I can tell just from your talking, you're in the National Forensics League and, uh, you know, because that's the points in the, uh, the gems. I did it in California. I did national extent and Lincoln Douglas debate, but 
the thing that I look back at and maybe the gap and the thing that I wish it did was this event called expository speaking. And a lot of times that involved like making poster board and, you know, explaining a process. I have to be honest, like delivering a slide deck is almost exactly mirrors an ex like an expository speech. And to think that, you know, when I was in, in 1990, you know, watching somebody do do that, like that, that would be a massive skill for a career. There's almost nothing else that I can point to in high school that I can say, oh, I do that every single day. And expository speaking is something that I do every single day. For folks that didn't have that background, I, I've regularly recommended Toastmasters. Uh, sometimes it's involvement in church, Sunday school, community organizations. Just some way in a low-risk environment, you can just get more mental cycles, muscles build around, you know, letting your mouth run in ways where you don't get yourself in trouble. And, and let's be real, in my current job, to be, I, I largely talk for a living. I don't actually do stuff for a living anymore, right? So I've, I've gone all the way down the spectrum in some ways. So, Well, and there's the speaking at a community event, a VMware user group, a, mm -hmm. a Spice mm -hmm. Corps, a, some kind of networking meetup, right? Whether it's from meetup.com or other, that's that generally speaking safe space to to go and try it and you yep. don't have to have the presentation written when you submit the abstract to give a talk you need to write it once it's accepted that is such a key point you come up with a catchy title a catchy abstract that you believe you can deliver on man there's i'm even going to follow that thread this pulling forward a little bit when when i actually had the first opportunity to do a community session at a vmug user con uh, I had submitted the abstract and the title. I wasn't selected. And then the night before, because I was going to be there anyway for a vendor you know, thing, uh, I actually got a reach out saying, hey, someone can't can't make it. Their flight got canceled. Would you like to do it? And I was like, why, yes, I would, but I haven't actually created the presentation yet. And that was actually the beginning of the golden hammer that later turned into like mental models and how we learned that turned into one of the top-rated community sessions and then a key, as a community keynote a couple times. But it was actually a little painful that night, staying up really, really late to pull it to the first version of it together. Well, and delivering it the next day on very little sleep while nervous. Not not the recommended model, but um, no. certainly a model, a path to get there. There's even sometimes the, uh, the idea that opportunities, well, this is like cliche, opportunities are disguised as hard work, and they never come at the exact time that you're looking for them, you know, kind of thing. So that sense of leaning in, kind of putting yourself out there. Uh, and then even that morning, we were, it was at the Florida VMUG UserCon, and the community session space was this kind of, it was a little bit off to the side, so people weren't hearing as they were walking by. So I had a speaker, and this is just like random story time, I think it's part of the point. Uh, I had a speaker, and um, you know the song Blue by Eiffel 65? Um, it's very, yes. it's definitely an earworm, and maybe annoying. But it's super catchy. But uh, playing that so that people would look up and instead of turning into the convention, uh, the hall that had all the vendor displays where you're going to go to our tchotchkes and stuff, they'd actually look down and see the community thing and blasting that on a portable speaker that I carried around. And then that became kind of the catchphrase of that session too, even kind of thing, how it always started out at the beginning. So just having fun, leaning in, taking some chances. That's terrific. You always have to like do abstracts on things that you're actually interested and passionate about. So just in case like somebody asks you to actually do the session at the last minute, you are still interested enough, but um, just really love that. And, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, there's 
that's what happens. And, you know, just to put another cliche out there, you know, luck is, you know, hard work plus opportunity, right? Like you, you do the work, maybe you like sketch out some content and then you, you know, pitch it. And then you do that again, you pitch something different, sketch out some more work, you pitch something different, sketch out some more work. And then somebody gives you an opportunity and it's like, oh, wow, you really got lucky. Like, well, maybe. <laughs> Maybe there's a, there's a sales rep at Vero, a part of the a second partner that I was at, and sometimes he was one of the top reps almost all the time, and he was a little bit that goofy at times, and I'm not giving anything away, but just like his personality, and then but realized that he was consistently successful, and the idea being that um, sometimes you can't hear the phrase of like, oh, they were just at the right place at the right time, I'm like mm, okay, so but if you pull that apart, I think this is maybe a different version of what you're saying, John that the you can control the place that you're at like you're doing the work you're putting yourself in there you're always waiting maybe you're interested in dating a girl or a guy you're always waiting on the corner just in case they walk by you know we can extend this out to a lot of things and if you're at the right place over and over and over again eventually it's going to intersect with being the right time so you control the pieces you can and then eventually it intersects and then someone who's just looking from the outside like, oh right place in the right time well if you're in the right place all the time yeah that's that's absolutely true and i think that's something that you know, a repeating pattern that we've seen in interviewing people is the controlling the things that you can control, right? Because, you know, you can't control whether or not somebody's going to take a chance on you and hire you and give you an opportunity at a new job. You can't control whether somebody, you know, lets you transfer from one part of the company to the other. But what you can control is your output, the quality of output, the level of professionalism that you bring to your job, you know, whether you're constantly pushing forward, you're um, learning and exploring new things and taking on new responsibilities. Like those are the things that you can control. You know, you control how well you document all that stuff. And then, you know, somebody, some point in time will take a chance on you and then, wow, you look so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and there's an element of style that you develop in all of this. The The way you present information and write about it and do work and you know I guess that's sort of an element of your personal brand too the the style that you develop is your are your presentations going to be fun and humorous are they going to be serious filled with sarcasm scary all kinds of different elements that you could use maybe you're somebody who just tosses up pictures and speaks to those or you like to fill the slide with with bullets but you know, you only give small nuggets and don't just read them. So a lot of different ways. That's what I thought of. And even some intentionality around that too. Cause I've even I think about kind of personal brand and online persona. This is part of just, just who I am at a personal belief, belief level. I mean, I can be very sarcastic inside my head. Right. But I, I, but I choose not to let a lot of that out because I want to be real and credible but also be relatively positive and look, choose to look at stuff as a glass half full. I mean, sometimes this is even the idea of being politically aware, but not playing politics, some of that kind of thing. You got to live in the real world to be able to navigate challenging situations, but not letting that infect who you are in kind of a snide and snarky way. And there's even one other, I mean, I've, I've got a peer here at Pure, actually, J.D. Wallace, who posted recently about, you know, he met someone who was like one of his, you know, someone you really looked up to. And when he met them the first time, they were just very dismissive. And it was like, mm, like, don't, don't want to turn into that. But I get why it happens because it's, it can be hard, but trying to make that, that choice about how you present and convey yourself 
and even the presentation style. Uh, I have some presentations that literally have been all pictures, but sometimes you got to use words and sometimes you got to be more corporate, but hopefully there's some thread of common maintaining who you are, even as you turn up and down the energy level and the volume and that kind of stuff. It's, you know, something, you know, that it just reminds me of another story. And this was uh, Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player. And I think he had like a, a bad game and was a little bit grumpy and he was like 11 years old or something like that. But at that time he was still like famous throughout Canada as like, you know, just one like an amazing star, you know, kid athlete playing like four or five years above his age level. And his father took him aside and said, Hey, you can't, you can't have a bad night like that. And you can't be grumpy because somebody has come to see you and you can't leave them with that impression of you. You can't ever have a night like that. And I think it just reminds me of something, you know, a, a few things that you said, you know, like the, sometimes that one time that you meet the person is like the only impression that you have of them, you know, outside of their like, you know, public, like one to many persona, you meet them one-on-one -on -one and like, you know, somebody met me and I was having like a, just a really down night and, you know, sarcastic and, you know, negative, like that's, you know, very possible that they're going to think that that's the sum total of me, you know, in real life, right? When I might've had just one bad night and you just don't know, especially when you're networking, when that person might be the referral to your next job. So, <laughs> you know, not that we need to be, you know, fake or two-faced. You just need to actually turn to that positivity and, you know, try to bring that in your life. It's, uh, a realization you you've unlocked that realization in me i need to write that down then we're going a little more philosophical i guess we'll wander back to career stuff in a second but it, it is about and this is even now a kind of a personal belief of being centered enough having enough um consistency and foundation in your life at a personal level that you can withstand career twists and turns and not have them totally unsettle you and being able to help those around you and be a sounding board be a mentor um, it, it's not easy, and sometimes you flip it around and you need help as well. Uh, but even from a career perspective, if, if I mean, th this is the definition of a good conversationalist, right? You ask someone questions until you find something they want to talk about, and then you shut up and listen, <laughs> right? Which people that see me in some contexts may be like, can he actually listen? Because all he does is talk for a living. Yeah, well, th but in meeting folks, I mean, the goal is to even have that level of empathy. And, and it's interesting how people, when you're actually interested in hearing their story and concern, you, you can sense it. Kind of, you can feel it, and it's really cool just valuing people as people and being there to help. That doesn't mean that you can't put time gates on things because you have you know varying levels of priorities, but um, having that be a real part of you. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back slightly to your point about you may only meet someone one time and that's their only impression of you. It's probably even more pressurized or something you think about more when you own your own business. And that's something mm -hmm. that you did for some years. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and yeah, reasons for it? Sure. So um, I was working at the university at the time and it was our, an hourly role. You get paid overtime past 40 hours. And given the role that I was in, there was always overtime work that needed to be done. It wasn't me just taking advantage of the system. So it was usually 55, 60 hours. I was married, no kids. My wife was doing freelance graphic design on the side. So it was all, it was all good. Like, and I want, at one point I remember the CIO saying like, Hey, you should develop these other interests. And I'm like, no, this is what I'm interested in. Like I want to do all this stuff and lots of it. 
So at one point, there was a little bit of a budget crunch, and they capped the amount of hours that you could do. So I was capped at, some folks were capped right at 40. I was capped at like 45 to 50, just because there were projects that wouldn't get done otherwise, uh, that had to be done. Um, and I started to do technical support. I, I'd always done kind of Mac support on the side, just as a, you know, kind of a side gig. But I started to do technical support for a web hosting company because this was the era of, uh, you know, kind of early 2000s. Um, everyone's going to have a blog. You're going to buy your own domain. Google Apps is starting out with free email under your own domain, all that kind of stuff, right? And I had enough. I was doing bind DNS and ISC DHCP and getting into Linux. And I've still got my 10 VI commands that I'll never lose, hopefully, you know, that kind of thing. So you can at least be competent on the command line. Otherwise, you couldn't have gotten started with VMware, right? Because you had to do... Uh, uh, VI to edit ntp.cfg with VI3, you know, vSphere, three hypervisor, oh, before vSphere. So I started to do technical support for two or three hours a night for a web hosting company, got more involved, started to do some of my own stuff, and got to the point actually where they brought me on as a, as a part owner uh, to reflect how much stuff I was doing and contributing. Uh, two guys that were actually up outside of Toronto, so I got to go there with my wife at one point, which was really cool because you're know, younger and it's like, oh, I could get to travel for like a, a side work thing. And so it was more just a, I want to find another outlet that aligned to my my kind of day job. I brought some of the experience with, you know, like I mentioned, DS, um, DHCP and DNS and Apache Web Server and MySQL, the LAMP stack, if you will, right? These are a lot of cPanel servers for anyone that's, you know, thinking back and cPanel still out there. Um, so it was this kind of this good uh, accelerator that aligned to stuff that I was doing. So it was a decent side income. It was stuff that I found interesting. I might have scratched the itch of writing scripts that were too long to automate various things, but as long as at least the time comes out as a wash, it's all right. You got to do a script and you didn't lose time at least, hopefully, you know, that kind of thing. So so it was more just this mix of like being early in my career and just wanting to learn and grow and pour time into it and then meeting some great folks and it worked out all right financially, like relative to what I was earning at the time too. And when you do something like that, Andrew, you did it for a period of time. How does one know when, okay, you know, I probably need to lay down this side gig because I need to do something else? What's what's your take on that one? So that actually came as I was uh, leaving the university. So I was there for seven years. There was kind of, a, kind of an admin to engineer to architect path, if you will. And I'm answering your question, but the the medium the medium way around, hopefully. All good. Um, so there's this uh, there's always this kind of upward gravitational pull. Like if you want to do something well, so like you're an admin for admin for systems, and you see how they're implemented or how they're chosen. Like you want to do it better, and you're not like I must be the guy to choose things or be more involved. But like I see the things down here that can only get fixed if I'm involved somewhat earlier in the selection implementation process or in the product selection process. So sometimes it's kind of upward gravitational pull when you want to do good work and make things better. However, eventually, and, and that can be for career climbing reasons, but it, it doesn't have to be. Uh, I found that you know, on the customer side, I've eventually, this is the days of NetWare and of, um, and of actually Windows and just, and even started to do VI3 and VI4, vSphere 4 and NetApp systems. And it felt like eventually, like it was just kind of the same projects over and over again, new cycles of upgrades, but it was a little bit of a rinse and repeat. And I would always try and hand off the day-to-day -day stuff, um, not because I was too good for it, but I'd try to automate it. Or there were some folks that were uh, previous mainframe operators, so they didn't mind doing kind of batch jobs early in the morning, that equivalent. And we got along fine, no, no disrespect, and some, some really capable folks just where they were in their career. And so I realized that jumping over to the partner side was very interesting. Uh, I, had, I had a great partner SE, Bernard Cobb, just, just such a 
such a wonderful human being. Um, anyone who meets him, just like that's the sense of the, the positivity and energy and depth that he has. And realize I could do this, but if I'm going to pour myself into that kind of a partner SE role, it was hybrid pre-sales and post-sales. I, I, it's not that's not a 45-hour job plus some extra time. And so I realized I'm going to have to start to tail down the side work. And when I looked at just being real, the earning potential of going from the customer side to the partner side, partner SE side, and then having some degree of leverage compensation, it was like if I double down on this side of my career and skill set, there's far more upside potential than what I'm doing over here. And it wasn't, it actually took myself a couple years to wind down some of the web hosting stuff because I didn't want to just be like, eh, I'm out, you know, because I, I appreciated the guys that I worked with, um, Damien and Jeff. Uh, but it was this realization that it'll be better for my career to double down and focus on one path versus do the multiple paths. Sometimes you call it diversification of income. There's even some when people talk about like fire, you know, that you're going to be financially independent, retire early. Sometimes that's the idea. Sometimes that applies, but sometimes it's like you pour yourself into a path. You can get more acceleration experience career financially by doubling down than staying, you know, diversified from a time perspective. Long answer, but I think I want oh, that's a great answer. Started. <laughs> Could you um, define a couple terms that you uh, use there? The distinction between customer and partner mm-hmm. and then the mention of leverage in uh, compensation. Oh, thank you. So customer, customer where you are the one who is actually running servers, storage, et cetera, for a business. In my case, you know, we're as a, in a university, that could be in, a, in any kind of company where I, there are IT departments, but the business of the company is not IT. Or maybe if the business of the company is technology, there's still internal IT operations groups inside that run the internal systems. When I say partner, I'm actually glad you call that out because partner can actually mean several different things. In this case, I was using it in the term of a channel partner. Uh, so this gets into a little bit of, I'm, I'm presuming that folks listening know some of this, but generally, if you look at manufacturers or vendor, vendors, Cisco, VMware, Pure Storage, NetApp, whoever, their legal customers are not the end customer. They have uh, distributors, and then they have channel partners, and then customers, some mix of that. And the channel partner is an interesting category because it's sometimes the term value-added reseller, sometimes solution integrator. Uh, some people don't like the term VAR, just reseller, you know, fine. But it's the idea that you have a company that can go and look at multiple products and technologies and stitch them together into a solution for a customer. In some cases, it is just, eh, I need to order 10 widgets, help me buy 10 widgets. In some cases, it can be, if it's more, that's more the reseller side. When it's more the value-added side, then you have companies that have full-on post-sales teams that help implement the solution after it's put in place. You have pre-sales, SEs. That's the role that I went into as sales engineer. Um, some hybrid, some post-sales where you're implementing it. Some pre-sales where you're talking about it and making promises. Um, you have sales folks. And this is where you start to see more of the industry and kind of how the mm, how the sausage is made. I like sausage, so that doesn't feel bad. You know, I just had sausage for dinner tonight along with oatmeal. Like, you know, like healthy stuff. The other piece there that when you said partner is as you get further into the industry, there's channel partners, then there's also alliance partners. So like someone like, I work for Pure now. We have channel partners. Um, These are the Presidios, WWTs, uh, CDWs, Siriuses. I'm not trying to leave anybody out here, just illustrating. But then you also have alliance partners. And for a, a Pure, a VMware is an alliance partner, and a Cisco is an alliance partner, you know, companies that make other products that we work together with. Leveraged. 
There's also a, a very interesting sense of the first time that you go from a defined paycheck, you know how much you're going to earn every week. Maybe it's different because you're hourly, you know, you have overtime, but to where you have an OTE on target earnings that's made up of here's my base, X amount, let's just make it easy. Or I'll, I'll pretend some really low numbers. You make $10,000 a year, so I'm not even getting any trouble because we all hopefully make more than that, right, kind of thing. So uh, maybe 7000 7, is your base that's paid out every month through every bimonthly, however it's paid. And then 3000 might be based on commission, based on la- related to stuff that's sold. So this is the idea of a leveraged compensation plan. And you can exceed based if there's more that's sold. And that then links into the one other one that I, I wanted to make sure. So I'm going to take this as, as permission to keep going into... As you go from partner to any kind of non, sorry, customer to any kind of non-customer role, come to the, the idea of trying not to sell your technical soul. Like you need to understand how your company makes money and how you make your company money. But that doesn't mean that you're just there to push a product on someone and like buy the thing. It, it can and should be if you work for a company with good products or a partner with a good portfolio, et cetera, can be truly, I look at your needs, I see where it truly fits, Maybe I see spots it doesn't fit as well. I emphasize the positives. We're back to some debate and extend background kind of thing. I figure out how to get enough momentum and never lying about stuff, but also understanding when to disclose the negatives and what negatives are relevant for any given customer. You don't start off with, here's all the things we don't do. That, that doesn't help a customer. You start out with the ways you can help them. And then you figure out the things that are relevant for them, honestly. Now, sometimes people don't do that well, but I think if over the years, and when I'm more cynical-ish, I joke about, you know, that over the years I've sold little pieces of my technical soul along my career. I've, I try not to sell all of it yet, but you, you figure out that d- dynamic of how you can still navigate being a, a technologist, truly, but being in organizations that fundamentally sell stuff to customers, but it's hopefully it's good stuff that they need. Well, that feels like an important part of selecting who it is that you work for, right? If you are involved in that process of selling technology or selling technology solutions, you want to represent, you know, organizations with products that make sense for the customer base that, that is, you know, looking for them. You know, you don't want to sell hammers to schools necessarily, unless it's like carpentry schools, and then it better be good hammers, right? You know, if you're in that intermediary, that partner space and that value added reseller or integrator, the organization itself, you want to work for you know, something that you feel like it represents, you know, does good work and is honest with its, you know, relationships and is looking to foster long-term relationships as opposed to, you know, um, short-term ones. That's uh, really interesting. I'm going to have to write that down too. The other piece there is the um, the, the idea of still hopefully being being motivated by the right things and having lived roles previously. So even, I mean, being real, I I wanted to get away from some of the day-to-day operations stuff, but not that I was too good for it. It was just, I wanted to build, experience new challenges, learn new stuff. So I I would argue, and this is no disrespect to folks that haven't had customer background and then become a sales engineer or an SE, that some of the better SEs either come from a customer background or are very empathetic and try to understand what customer life is like so they know how it affects people on a day-to-day operation basis, not just how much time does it take to implement. This is a little bit of the day zero, day one, day two methodology, if you will. You know, what is it like to architect? What is it like to implement? That's day one. Will it take professional services? Is it simple? What's the day two operational overhead? What are people going to get stuck having to manage and navigate? 
and being able to explain that and even kind of count the cost because maybe the products you're working with do have some day-to-day operational overhead. But if the alternative products in the space are that much worse, you're still helping. You're still doing the right thing fundamentally, but being being upfront about that. And sometimes then even cuttings are like, well, these guys over here say that their thing is super simple to administer. I don't want to go negative, but you might want to ask them for some references, some customers that will talk to them about, you know, to you as a customer, uh, Mr. Customer, Mrs. Customer, about what is it really like for the day-to-day operational side? So you're, there's even some soft competition in their competitive nature by knowing how to highlight where you're good and never calling out if there's FUD, but helping customers be aware of it. Comparative, not competitive sometimes. Yeah, I like that. Don't get involved in the in the dirt throwing, right? It's not a it shouldn't be like a political campaign commercial. But that doesn't mean you're you you shouldn't highlight for customers stuff they need to go check on and dig into, especially yeah. If there's false claims or embellished claims, and then even watching yourself that you're not getting you over your skis in the meeting where you get too excited and too competitive. I mean, that could happen too. Yeah. Here are some points of consideration if you're going to do that. Think hard on these things. Yeah. I like it. There's a, um, there's also a, I'm kind of just riffing a little bit on the you know, pre-sales, technical sales, sales engineer role. Sometimes there's this persona shift of that, hey, I've been the technical person. I'm not in sales. And you're like, you're not. And there's a great uh, blog post by Joe Onisek that I've mentioned multiple times. I'm guessing we put this in the show notes. We can cut this if not. You know, it's called The Art we of Pre-Sales. Will. I've said it a lot of times, and he has five principles of pre-sales. You know, that you are not a sales rep, but you are part of a sales team. It's your job to be relevant from a business standpoint and technically knowledgeable. And you periodically, you know, you're skating along the top, and then you go deep in various areas that are relevant, and then you pull it back up. So, I've sent that to so many folks that have thought of becoming becoming SEs because there's just a lot of good principles. One that he doesn't have in there that I find just fascinating at a psychological level is when you're in a meeting with a customer, and this could be any meeting even. But if you're there, if you're there to be the expert, okay. So someone has asked you to come in, and they know they need an expert or someone who knows knows stuff. They don't want to have their faces rubbed in it, so it can't be arrogant. You still need to be approachable and likable, genuinely kind of thing, but. There's this this fascinating phrase, I don't know. Three words, right? If you say that too soon in a conversation, especially if you're the technical resource person in the room, up to a certain point of the conversation, the reaction is like, well, why is this guy, girl, lady, person here? Like, they're supposed to know this stuff. They're not the sales rep who does pricing and quoting. But past a certain general point in a meeting or in a sales cycle or discussions with people, I don't know actually flips around. And instead of lowering your credibility... It raises your credibility because now it's like, well, hey, Andrew, Andrew knows stuff, but he's not pretending that he knows everything because, of course, everyone can't know everything. And now he's being honest about it, you know, kind of thing. And, and of course, then you've got to follow up and not make unrealistic expectations. I'll find that answer in an hour when it's you can't find it in an hour. You know, don't shoot yourself in the foot with setting expectations to customers and asking for kind of thing. But you do have to follow up. But just I mean, it's fascinating. And sometimes there's even uh, little parlor tricks of if you're on a whiteboard and there's a bunch of topics Maybe you order the topics to go over the ones that you know really well first to build that credibility. So by the time you have to get to the I don't know topics, uh, maybe they fall off the end of the meeting. Or when you say I don't know, it's not as painful to say. Yeah, and you'd probably want to do that if you were making a pitch to your boss about something your company should buy. Like, hey, we need to go to this antivirus and endpoint detection and response platform because it's better and here are the reasons why, and you know the top five really well, and the last couple you know he's going to ask about at the bottom. 
And this isn't being dishonest, but it is being intentional without hopefully being manipulative. And that is a, a fine line to walk, but it's something that I, I think about not as much. I don't think about it all the time, but I thought about that regularly. But if, can I be intentional in what I'm doing with a purpose and a plan? But I'm not trying to be manipulative and pull folk, pull something over on folks. It actually reminds me, you know, I'll tell the story and people who play Nerd Journey Bingo are probably, you know, punching a card. You know, the first training that I went to when I got my first, you know, vendor job at VMware, you know, that was about, I think it was about value selling, I think was the, the topic. And they said, well, you have to know, you know, what the concerns of the decision maker are and like how they're metric, you know, what, you know, how they measure success professionally and personally. And you have to understand how your product is going to, you know, align with that. And I was like, you know what, you need to know that if you're like pitching to that person as their report, when you're trying to get funding for your project, you know, as an IT operations person, you know, in that organization, not just as like a technical salesperson or as a salesperson. So, you know, I think that a lot of like what we think of as sales skills, you know, really cross over to effective, you know, operation skills as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, you know, I just wish that I had learned that lesson when I was actually in operations and not, you know, afterwards, because I would have been better at getting my projects funded because my, you know, my joke is always like, hey, you know, we're on version three of the backup software and we really should upgrade to version six. And my boss would say, why? Can we still do backups? <laughs> and I was like, yes. Can we still do restores? Well, yes. It's like, well, why do we need to go to version six? Well, it's, you know, it's three times better, you know, because it's version two to version six. It's obviously three times better. That was not aligned with any of his success metrics, which probably had to do with customer success, revenue, market share. And I did not speak to that at all. I was just spending money for no good reason as far as he was concerned. <laughs> Trying to get the cool stuff. Well, that's what they think. <laughs> um, I might have had multiple uh, non-funded DR proposals, uh, which definitely I lead. I mean, I tell that story to be like uh, uh, multiple times where I did not justify it well enough. There, there's even the, or talking about executive presentations, sometimes where adjusting the style based on where you are in the organization and even even role. So like often from a, you know, kind of a pre-sales SE role, it can be, I'm going to lead you through the, the technical story of the data that I gathered, the folks that I worked with on the team, here's how we sized and decided on this stuff. And of course, then here's what we're recommending for the architecture and then the pricing at the end, because just, you know, kind of classic structure, but you're, you're telling a story of what you've done. Um, there's, there's a gentleman named uh, Jihad Afona, uh, where he actually has been on kind of C-suite levels for a while. And later in, later in, I found like I actually had some feedback from an executive when I was doing a presentation. And he said, you know, you don't need to lead in. We trust you already. Tell us your conclusion first and then back it up. And I was like, that makes so much sense. I'm not the, you know, likable, hopefully kind of outside person essentially trying to pitch you on something and showing how I'm valid and credible. Once you're on the inside, it's like, well, you are the trusted person, especially to an executive that doesn't have a lot of time start with a conclusion and then break that all down. So actually I tossed that link in there because I've actually, some of the stuff start with a conclusion, the problem you're solving. There can be very different kind of proposal styles based on the persona of where you are relative to the person you're presenting to. I mean, that, that 
perfectly aligns with a, another lesson from that exact same training, which was, you know, start, or I think it was the exact same, you know, statement, start with a conclusion, you know, or drop, drop the customer into the middle of the story, you know, at a point where they're going to want to listen to the, how we got here, you know, because you might have, you know, a decision maker, it might be an hour long meeting, but that decision maker might say, you know what, this meeting's not worth my time and walk out after five minutes. So if you're telling a story with an introduction and then introduction to all the characters and then building tension and then, you know, like the, the, the plot peaks at, you know, minute 50, well, that person's been gone for 45 minutes. So, or maybe not physically gone, but they might've been mentally gone on their phone. Yeah. So, <laughs> and they might, they might be physically gone too, you know? So, you know, you want to, you want to start by, you know, I love that idea. Start with inclusion. This is why we're here. Um, this is what we're doing. And I am happy to tell you, you know, why you want to do this. Um, and then this is like kind of how we got here three months earlier. I don't remember what that class was, Nick, that we probably both took, but the guy talked about, you know, storytelling and he said in media res, like you drop your, you know, a lot great of, demo. Mo- yes, that's right. It was the great demo class, mm-hmm. Peter. And, you know, he said, you know, drop your, uh, you, you, a lot of movies will like start you out and, you know, in peak action moment, right? Like at, at a, a moment of high drama, if nothing else. And then say, oh, now that you're hooked on that, like maybe let's back up like and tell you how we got there. Now that if you, you care about yeah, the characters. Yeah, exactly. I love this link. Even sometimes proposal-wise, um, the idea that sometimes I'll, I'll paint the, the, I don't think I've ever put this on a slide, uh, but the you could have all this idea. Here's the beautiful future version you could have. And then often you break it into phases so you don't get stuck in paralysis analysis with doing it all. And you know that by the time someone gets to phase three of the project, things are probably going to change enough. But at least, you know, any given phase is legitimate. And it's a way to get, paint a grand vision and then also practically help people get started. Because there's, there's nothing worse than paralysis analysis. Well, what's really cool about that is that works really well to help someone see what could be that maybe they can't for a technology mm-hmm. solution. But mm-hmm. by networking with people like yourself you get that future state architecture for your career, right? By having these conversations with people like you, John and I are giving the greater community the future state vision of what could be for them. So it's very, like, you just hit 1,500 bells and whistles in my brain that fired at the same time. I I love it. Okay, let's cut it right there. That's the end of part one with Andrew. And I just want to see if anybody heard some of the things I heard. Did you notice that, much like some of our other guests, Andrew had someone who saw potential in him, and he was given a chance to be on the help desk, to move into IT operations. Many of us have benefited from having that person who saw something in us and who gave us a chance to do something amazing and we just kept going from there. So 
If you are a person who can give someone a chance, keep your eyes open. How about that side gig? Andrew worked part-time for the web hosting company and even became a part-time owner. And that is that experience, along with his day job, led him to greater heights. I like the fact that he chose to end his time there in a positive way, deciding not to leave his business partners in a bad situation, perhaps spending more time than, than maybe others would. But he wanted to do that because he felt like it was the right thing, and I, I commend him for doing that. Do you have a future state vision or a future state architecture for your career? Well, if you do, it is likely that has come from exposure to the types of careers that are possible, to the types of roles that could be for you, and probably from talking with other people. And I hope that by listening to this episode, maybe you gained a little more insight about what life in pre-sales is like and how you can do it the right way, and how you can be intentional and be motivated by the right things. I really enjoyed hearing the story about Andrew submitting his presentation for a VMUG user con, and then the day before getting asked to give the presentation and then staying up late to, to finish it. It was a great experience, and it actually led to his development of this presentation called Golden Hammer. Interestingly enough... On April 26th of 2022, at the New Jersey VMUG, Andrew will be giving the next iteration of the Golden Hammer Talk. So I'll put the registration in the show notes if you haven't been able to hear that presentation. That's one that I definitely want to check out. I liked his tips for presenting, not only at a conference, but to other people, whether you're in pre-sales or whether you're trying to make a, a pitch inside your organization to get a project funded, or something that should be done, maybe a change of process, for example. If you want more presentation advice, check out episodes 73 and 74 with Al Rashid. I mean, he was voted the most helpful V-expert in 2021, so you're going to find some definitely helpful advice there from Al. Great dude. I'll sum it up with this. Remember that opportunities are disguised as hard work, as Andrew said. You may not realize it at the time, but not everybody is willing to do the hard work. And if you are, that makes you stand out. That is something that differentiates you from the rest of the talent pool. It can really take you on a rocket ship to that next level in your career, wherever it may be that you want to go. Maybe you're wondering what part two holds in store for us with Andrew. We're actually going to follow him on the path to becoming a people leader next week. But that's all I'm going to tell you for now. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and intentional and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore flying solo for now. My buddy John White at The Journeyman signing off.